you're listening to Humanity's Human, a podcast where I talk about whatever I want. And today that means the alt-right pipeline and why you need to check in with your Fortnite playing younger brother. But first, a quick podcast update. Um, I've basically just decided that I'll be uploading once a month instead of more frequently, so that's why you'll be hearing less of me. Uh, Anyway, before I get into this episode, please know that the following contains use of the word N-A-Z-I and discussions of fascism. So if that makes you uncomfortable, please proceed with caution. I'm sure after months of quarantining and plenty of time on social media, we're all pretty familiar with the concept of dark humour and its misuse as justification for racist, sexist and homophobic jokes. For those unaware, allow me to enlighten you. Dark humour definitionally refers to the idea of making light of something traditionally very bleak or negative. This could include jokes about sickness, death and the like, and are useful coping mechanisms, especially for those who suffer from the subject matter. When telling or hearing dark jokes, it's important to think about the concepts of punching up and punching down. Punching up refers to an oppressed group poking poking fun at a dominant group. For example, women making jokes about about how men are gross, or people of colour making jokes about how white people are uncultured. These are and always will be just jokes because neither women nor people of colour are in power in society, and therefore no matter how many jokes or perhaps even truly prejudiced things they say, they will never unseat the dominant groups. Punching down refers to when a dominant group insults a minority, so basically reversing the roles of what I just said. White people making fun of people of colour is punching down, men making jokes about women is punching down. Unless you're living under a rock, something about this should sound a little bit wrong. And usually those kinds of jokes, as in like, you know, get back in the kitchen, make me a sandwich, etc. Usually those kinds of jokes are classed as dark humor, uh, which is obviously incorrect. And the label of dark humor is being used to mask something which is actually just plain old racism, sexism, and homophobia. Now, get this. Dark humour, that is, the wrong sort of dark humour, is part of an indoctrination process called the alt-right pipeline. Let me rewind it for you. The alt-right, short for alternative right, referring to the right side of politics, um, is really just a code word for Nazi. Check out my episode on Nazis, no pressure, but kind of pressure, but no really, I just explored the topic better there. So tack pipeline onto the end of it, and it refers to an internet quote-unquote pipeline that slowly radicalizes young white men into the ideology of the far right, aka Nazism. It takes advantage of a process of desensitization through many social media algorithms, including the YouTube algorithm, slowly showing the viewer more and more radical content without them themselves noticing much of a change. This means that when on social media, victims of the pipeline will slowly be offered more and more extreme content until they're watching unironic Nazi propaganda. On YouTube, this could take the form of, for example, watching gaming content, which then gets funneled into social justice warriors getting owned videos, which of course leads to Ben Shapiro, who I could genuinely do a half hour rant on, and then it goes further and further until these boys are unironically watching videos about why we need a white ethnostate. Which, by the way, why do they? What do they even mean by ethnostate? White isn't an ethnicity, but go off, I guess. P 
People who are indoctrinated or are in the process of being indoctrinated are incredibly likely to express themselves through the aforementioned dark humour. In fact, it's also incredibly likely that they were lured down the pipeline by dark humour in the first place, because dark humour, the bad kind obviously, presents itself as an approachable and non-serious introduction to racism, normalising it as something that is acceptable and genuinely funny. Okay, cool, that's the podcast, thanks for listening. Just kidding, we haven't even scratched the surface. Sure, we know what the pipeline is and kind of how it works, but why is it only targeted at boys? And why is there no alt-left pipeline? And is there even a way to stop it? Ever since the Columbine killings in 1999, a crime perpetrated by a white nationalist who fell prey to the pipeline, a sentiment has become increasingly popular in the mainstream media, and that sentiment is that video games make people who play them more violent, especially point-of-view shooter games. The general sentiment is that such games stimulate real-life situations to the point that participants might begin to normalise the behaviour and be more likely to pick up a weapon and commit dangerous acts in real life. However, multiple studies demonstrate that video games don't have deep-seated psychological effects like this on their players. For example, a 2018 longitudinal study, which just means it happened over a long amount of time, published on the website Molecular Psychiatry, had three groups of participants play games with different levels of violence in them to see whether the level of violence would affect their mental state. The first group played Grand Theft Auto, which is relatively violent, the second group played Sims, which isn't violent at all, and the third group did not play any video games. Over the course of two months, all three groups were quizzed on general topics with the intention of picking up on any increase in sexist attitudes, violent tendencies, and other stereotypical behaviours pinned on video games in the past. However, the study found no differences in the attitudes of members of any group, and furthermore, they found no changes in the several months after the study was conducted. This is just one example, but the results have been replicated in other studies too. So there's a pretty big chance that playing video games alone won't lead someone into an alt-right hellhole. So then why are the two so closely linked? Why have other shooters in the past been deeply involved in gaming? Why did the New Zealand mosque shooter, albeit ironically, claim that Fortnite and other related games taught him to fight for white ethno-nationalism? In order to work this out, we need to understand that Nazism is a missionary religion. Members of that group purposefully spend time attempting to indoctrinate people like themselves. And as we know, they value straight, white, cisgender, racist, sexist, homophobic men above all else as being the master race, which explains why boys assumed to be of that persuasion are targeted online. According to professor of game studies and avid gamer Megan Condis, it's not about the content of the games, but rather the culture surrounding them that provides particularly fertile soil for growing seeds of resentment that turn into hate. Recruiters of the Nazi doctrine seek out targets on gaming forums and stage seemingly casual conversations about issues of race and identity in order to begin the process or slow doubt or start taking these people off in different lines of thought. Those who exhibit curiosity about white nationalist talking points or express frustration with the alt-right's ideological opponents such as feminists, anti-racists and social justice warriors 
are then escorted through a funnel of increasingly racist rhetoric designed to normalize the presence of white supremacist ideology and paraphernalia through the use of edgy humor and memes. Think like Pepe the Frog. Video games in particular come equipped with an easy to understand narrative of invasion of spaces that in the right hands can be readily expanded beyond the world of gaming. Surveys show that gaming isn't really dominated by people of one race, gender or sexuality, but the stereotype of the hardcore gamer as a geeky, teenaged, straight white boy still persists in our culture and white nationalists are great at exploiting it. As events like the 2014 harassment campaign hashtag Gamergate amply demonstrated, to some members of the gaming community, the increased visibility of people of colour, women and LGBTQ people in gaming circles is seen less as an expansion and more as a hostile takeover. White supremacist recruiters have recognised this feeling of resentment bubbling up and pounced, seeking gamers who fit the stereotype. They tell those gamers that they really do represent the rightful majority within their community and that all others are either opportunistic fakers only pretending to be into games or intruders trying to ruin everything fun and unique about gaming culture with their insidious political correctness. Planting the seeds of this narrative is the first step towards cultivating an us versus them mentality. According to Christian Piccolini, a former white supremacist recruiter and co-founder of the non-profit organization Life After Hate, this type of rhetoric can create a politics of entitlement and resentment organized around race. So if a young white man can be convinced that gaming belongs to him and is on the verge of being taken away, he might be more easily persuaded to accept similarly structured arguments about, say, the dangers of allowing non-white immigrants to take over the country under the noses of real Australians or Americans or other white countries. In posts in the gaming section of the explicitly white nationalist message board Stormfront, participants debate amongst themselves about which mainstream game releases are the most amendable to white power ideology. They exchange links to servers on free chat platforms like Discords for whites only and to groups dedicated to white nationalism on Steam, an online gaming store. In the wake of scathing news coverage, both Steam and Discord have made efforts to try and get rid of this content. But I mean, kind of ironic since the founder of Discord is Jewish. People with this type of ideology have also taken to creating white supremacist games of their own either by creating explicitly neo-Nazi-themed modifications of popular titles like Doom, Counter-Strike and Stellaris, or developing their own indie titles. A few standouts in the indie category include titles like Ethnic Cleansing, which allow gamers to play as a skinhead or clansman while participating in a race war, and Muslim Massacre, the game of modern religious genocide, which encourages players to take control of heroes and wipe out the Muslim race. Yikes. Furthermore, this indoctrination process extends well beyond gaming, with platforms such as YouTube and Facebook being accused of having biased algorithms as well. Online Nazis sell bigotry as a solution to the problems that could be facing regular white dudes. For example, economic anxiety, fearing an influx of non-white immigrants, or feeling emasculated due to their nerdy interests like gaming and anime. 
These are the closest that a white man will ever get to being oppressed. And yet the alt-right convinces them that they are valid problems that need to be solved and that the solution is bigotry. This indoctrination process happens one or one of two ways. Either our regular white dude stumbles upon a Nazi community online, or one of white dude's existing communities is infiltrated by online Nazis. Stumbling across a Nazi space can happen one of two ways. Either he finds himself on a racist message board on 4chan or another related site, which, side note, when boys go online and spend time in radically conservative chat rooms and forums, it's unlikely that they even make an account or leave a comment, rather just absorbing the information given to them. In this way, we can see that if a consumer of this content went out and, let's say, committed a crime on behalf of Nazis, sure, we can definitively agree that Nazis radicalized him online, but we can't conclude that he was explicitly told to go out and commit a crime. The online presence of white nationalism insulates leaders from consequence, and if that's not terrifying, I don't know what is. Anyway, as we were saying, alternatively to this, he could also stumble to the mouth of the pipeline by finding himself subscribing to YouTubers who preach a radically conservative doctrine. These show content creators are, at least by white dude standards, charismatic and likable. Think Steven Crowder, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro. And they could be popular on any kind of media platform, not just YouTube, although I'm only going to talk about YouTube because who is on Facebook? These people often never set out to be entry points to the radical right and often don't think of themselves that way now, but that doesn't change the fact that they are an intrinsic part of the pipeline. Why these people appeal to our regular white dude is because they aren't selling politics as politics. They aren't encouraging him to read theory or mentioning specific government policy, but rather they advertise conservatism as a kind of lifestyle brand with a heavy emphasis on critiquing the left instead of pushing their own arguments. Furthermore, they don't argue that the right has a moral high ground or better policies in government, but that abandoning progression and embracing conservatism will make white dude happy. And this kind of parasocial relationship where you know our white dude doesn't have a direct relationship with his uh, conservative commentators is the first method of indoctrination. It's where he just stumbles across some content online that he thinks, oh, this is kind of cool. And he, he stays for the entertainment rather than the politics. The second method of indoctrination is infiltration, whereby Nazis enter a community which our white dude is already a part of. You see, making edgy content online might not always be done with the goal of a white ethnostate in mind, but rather because controversial messages and thumbnails get clicks. Believe it or not, this can also occur um, like from YouTubers. I mean this in the sense that our white dude might already be a fan of a YouTuber who makes, who makes um, you know, content that's unrelated to politics. And then maybe they make gaming content, maybe they make self-help content. So that's separate to Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder and all the rest of them. Because Ben Shapiro, for example, makes content specifically related to the left and critiquing the left and, you know, roasting the left with facts and logic. 
Um, whereas having a creator that you're already a fan of begin to make slowly more and more conservative content um, is a way, it's a demonstration of the creator infiltrating their own community. Basically, I mean, edgy humor is not always done with the goal of a white ethno state, but rather controversial messages and thumbnails get clicks. When online creators do this and a small part of their audience responds positively and they face no backlash, naturally they do it again, <clears throat> PewDiePie. This draws more attention from radical conservatives who make up an increasingly large portion of said creator's audience, and so their comment section starts to fill up with encouragement. In this way, a cycle begins where the audience and creator radicalize each other further and further, further towards the right. Of course, this kind of infiltration also happens online apart from parasocial relationship. So like on sites with chat rooms and message boards, it is easiest to start disagreements about race and politics in times of political discord. Say, for example, um, Star Wars made a new film and the protagonist was black. Or perhaps um, a bunch of alt-right users try enter a forum and purposely start to make arguments. Or maybe both, maybe they make arguments about the black protagonist in Star Wars. By applying the right pressure at the right time, it's possible to convince the primarily white dude audience of these, um, you know, movies or whatever, of this content, that there is a need to remove some vague and broad political correctness from the conversation. Because apparently, you know, Nazis come in and they start arguments and they say, why are you getting so political? But who's making these conversations political? People who think that people of colour and queer people and women deserve rights? That's so ridiculous and completely unrelated to Star Wars, which is definitely not an anti-fascist narrative. Ridiculous. By hinting at this possibility, alt-right recruiters are able to convince majority white dude communities that they are in danger of being taken over by identity politics and political discourse that does not belong in their fandom. And in this way, they are able to convince them that the left is a threat to their safety. Believe it or not, these kind of fandom forums are the closest that white dudes will ever get to like a safe space. So even though they hate safe spaces, um, Nazis are able to convince them that women and people of color and politics and the left are coming in to like pry open their safe space and do bad things, I presume. In both these situations, Nazis finding a white dude or a white dude stumbling across Nazis, he doesn't stay for the ideology, but rather for the community. Maybe the real ethno-nationalism was the community and the friends we made along the way. Interestingly enough, white dudes' problems could just as properly be addressed by progressive left-wing ideas. So the right just offers racist, sexist, and homophobic solutions instead. For example, it's true that workers are often exploited in our current society, but instead of the left-leaning idea of unionization, right-wing, right, oh my god, try say right-wing ten times really fast, right-wing recruiters suggest that the deportation of immigrants is what needs to happen instead. Or, it's true that there's an acute loneliness and pressure felt by young men in the modern age, 
but instead of it being due to the immense expectations placed on them by other men, it's apparently due to women being too liberated. If you take a look at conservative commentators, especially on YouTube, but honestly anywhere on the internet, you'll see that it's all incredibly repetitive. I mean, you can only identify as an attack helicopter so many times before you need to start looking for new material. But the repetition is necessary for indoctrination because the arguments themselves aren't good either. As noted by Innuendo Studios in the video essay The Alt-Right Playbook How to Radicalize a Normie, you only need to hear a good argument once in order to internalize it and then repeat it and argue it with someone else. But a bad argument won't convince you by itself, instead relying on the charisma of the person arguing it. The actual words matter less than the delivery, because oftentimes the words make little to no sense, which is why you need Ben Shapiro, who sounds like he's on two times speed, to say it and be like, you know, hypothetically, etc. As your average white dude continues to peel back the layers of the onion that is neo-Nazism, we start to wonder what happens when you get to the middle. What happens when you are the absolute most hateful, most radical version of yourself? In real life Nazi groups, uh, perhaps individuals would be given missions, but that's impossible online. And as I mentioned before, this disconnect between Nazis and the people they're trying to indoctrinate actually protects leaders from having to take any responsibility for the actions of people who listen to them. We need to remember that average white dudes only really enter this spiral for a sense of community and to reap the rewards promised to them if they swallow the red pill. But with their eyes as wide open as they can possibly be, with no relief in sight, these young men are just left, you know, hating Jews and stewing in their own hate. It's no wonder that so many crimes are committed by these people. What's scarier is how close the pipeline is. Maybe you need to check on your brother, ask him what he's watching on YouTube. It's been noted that the way um, people get out of the alt-right pipeline, I mean, without older or younger siblings checking on them and making sure that, you know, they're not Nazis, uh, either these young men grow out of it or realize that there's no there's no relief coming for them or um, they, they begin to lose friends and get into arguments and realize that it's not okay to behave in this way or maybe they do remain hateful Nazis forever and I mean in that case maybe we don't want to be friends with them anyway. So this leaves one final question in my mind. What about an alt-left pipeline? Why is there no such thing as an alt-left? And why are there no instances of collective leftist indoctrination online? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as an alt-left. The intent of such phrasing seems to be to frame alt-left as the opposite of alt-right and create a kind of false equivalence between these groups on the far ends of right and left. As one of my friends put it, what does that even mean? liking everyone? Does alt-left, you know, if it's the opposite of alt-right, does that mean instead of hating everyone, you like everyone? In that case, alt-left doesn't even sound so bad. But here's the thing, unlike neo-Nazis, 
No left-wing group has ever called itself the alt-left, and the groups smeared by the alt-left label don't include anything as bad as the overt white supremacism that has increasingly defined the alt-right. We also need to remember that the term alt-right was coined by neo-Nazis to describe their ideology because it isn't okay or acceptable to be a white supremacist and therefore they have to, you know, verbally disguise themselves. Whereas leftist behaviours like believing in human rights and, uh, and not hating gay people and not believing in the oppression of women are more socially acceptable and don't need to be hidden. While Nazism and the far right is already bad enough that it needs to be normalized and obscured behind different wording, the majority of left-wing ideas are okay to discuss openly. By just thinking about what the term really means, we can see that there isn't really such thing as an alt-left, the closest to which might be anarchism, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Even so, that doesn't entirely dispel the existence of a left-wing pipeline. Um, except for the fact that there's literally no evidence of one. The nature of the left online doesn't lend itself to the scare tactics that the alt-right pipeline uses. Leftists don't commit themselves to infiltrating groups and spreading the Marxist doctrine or anything like that. Instead, waiting for interested or curious parties to come to them. Furthermore, leftism online does not attempt to disguise itself as something other than politics in the way that radical conservatism does which is probably why it seems way more boring and less rewarding. Spend 10 minutes on any leftist TikTok page and you'll more than likely be recommended a whole bunch of theory and then be told to go and sign a petition. Above all, online leftists are just a big book club focused on radicalization through education rather than misinformation. Oh, what a rhyme. And on that wonderful note, that's all for today. Thank you for listening and I hope you learned something. If you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me on Instagram at christelle.com.au and feel free to recommend any topic that you'd like me to research next. Also, don't forget to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that really, really helps me out. Until next time, this has been Humanities Human.